2 Corinthians 5, from verse 11. To chapter 6, verse 2. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks, Carl. Well, I don't want to cause anyone unnecessary alarm, but the tablecloth is upside down. <laughs> I just, I just have to get that off. Have to get that off my chest. Deep breaths, one step at a time. We can, we can get through this together. Well, if you're, uh, if you're joining us here this morning for the first time, uh, we've been going through the book of, one, uh, of 2 Corinthians for the last few weeks, and we've uh, discovered that the book of 2 Corinthians, the letter of 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote to that church in that time, is a book of vivid contrasts, uh, suffering and comfort, Grief and forgiveness, fragrance of life and stench of death, earthly tent, heavenly home. It's a book of contrast centred on that most fundamental contrast of all, Jesus crucified in weakness and raised by God's power. And all the way through this letter that Paul wrote, he's showing how that contrast works how Christ crucified by, uh, in weakness and raised by God's power, how that contrast works out in the life of Christians and in Christian ministry. But on two particular occasions in this letter, Paul, I think, really drives home 
what it is that he's getting at. There's two chapters in which he really drills down into the life of the Corinthians and this is one of them and the other is the last chapter of the book. Here again, uh, here in particular, Paul challenges the Corinthians to examine themselves. He begins again here by describing the nature of his ministry. He's done that so much over the last uh, few chapters of his letter. And he begins by discussing the motivations of his ministry. So he writes in verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Why is Paul engaged in ministry? It's out of fear, not servile fear, not uh, kind of intimidation, but fear in the sense of reverence and respect, a deep sense that God is not somebody to be trifled with. I remember when I was working as an engineer, uh, that uh, the, the directors and the kind of the section heads and uh, even the military brass that sometimes came walking through, you, you had a kind of a, a sense of respect and awe for them, particularly the military guys who'd come in with their, uh, you know, like uh, colonels and uh, uh, brigadiers. Uh, I remember once crossing path with the, with the brigadier, but anyway, we won't go there. But um, if they asked you to do something, you'd do it because you had this kind of sense of respect. They had an authority it's not as though, you know, if uh, they said, you know, well, can you do this for me? You'd sit at your computer kind of typing away in anxious fear. But you did it because you knew that they were people that you didn't want to disappoint. They had an authority and a status. And Paul's saying it's the same with God. Paul tries to persuade people of the truth of the gospel because he respects God, he honours God, he fears God. He continues with another motivation for his ministry. Verse uh, 11 again, Since then we know what it is to fear God, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain to your conscience. There's no kind of underhandedness. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul serves people with the words of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, because he fears God, but also because uh, he does it for God's sake. He also serves people with the gospel for God's sake and for the sake of the Corinthians. And if that means being thought crazy by some people, then that doesn't matter. Paul's, Paul's okay with that because he's doing it for God's sake. And if it means being honoured by other people because he's mentally well balanced, well, Paul doesn't mind that either because he's doing it for the Corinthians' sake so that they might hear the gospel and so that they might receive it. Sometimes when we share the gospel with people, people think that we're out of our minds. But we do it for the sake of God. And sometimes we share the gospel with people and they think, well, isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful what they've done? And that's nice. But we don't do it for the acclamation. We do it because 
We love those people to whom we speak the truth of the gospel. Paul ministers the gospel because he fears God. He does it for God's sake, for the sake of the Corinthian church. The ultimate reason, though, that he does it is in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's the love of Christ which compels him. It's the gospel, it's the good news that motivates their missionary endeavour. Notice that Paul's logic isn't merely Jesus has loved us, so we're loving you. His logic is Jesus died for all so that they wouldn't live for themselves anymore. Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't live for ourselves but live for Jesus. One of the greatest impediments to the gospel is not so much lovelessness, I think, but more often that we don't love Jesus enough. It's not that we don't love other people, but we don't love Jesus enough. We live for ourselves rather than living for him. So instead of asking, how can I serve Jesus? Instead of beginning the day by saying, how can I serve Jesus? We tend to begin the day asking, how can I make my life easier, happier, more convenient, more pleasant? Instead of building the kingdom, we build a career or a house or a reputation. We even build families. Even good things, good gifts from God can be distorted and we can end up unwittingly living for those things rather than living for God. Paul says Christ died for us. Why? So that we can be saved, yes, but more than that, so that we would no longer live for ourselves but live for him. Or as Paul says elsewhere, you are not your own, but were bought at a price. Or in the famous words of the frequently asked questions of the 16th century German city of Heidelberg, I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. The gospel motivated Paul's ministry. He did it out of fear for God. He did it for God's sake, for the love of the Corinthians, but most of all, he did it because Christ died so that Paul would no longer live for himself, but live for Jesus. So the gospel is Paul's key motivation for ministry, but now also he goes on to say that the gospel is the message of his ministry. The message of Paul's ministry, of Titus' ministry, of Timothy's ministry is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to explain what the good news is. Someone was recollecting to me the other day uh, how they'd had a golden opportunity to share the gospel with someone uh, and they felt like they'd made a meal of it Uh, and we've all been in that same situation, haven't we, where we... We try to explain the gospel, but it just doesn't seem to come out right. Well, Paul here helps us out by describing the gospel. And he describes it in three different ways. First, he describes it in terms of old creation and new creation. So verse 16, 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is such a wonderful window into the reality of the good news. Everybody likes new things, uh, and generally people don't like old things, except for antiques collectors. But you get the point of the uh, you get the point of the illustration, right? People like new things because they work well, they look nice. Old things often don't work; uh, they they break, they wear out, they begin to look shabby. Now, old, you know, think of old carpet. Uh, or an old bathroom, or whatever it might be. We like new things. It might shock you to know that there's somebody in this church who is a closet valiant restorer, as in the car, the valiant. Uh, I won't tell you who it is. We'll just call him Jay DeGraff. No, wait. No, that's... uh, (laughs) That's too easy. No, but there there is someone in the church who, who, who... has an affinity, a love for the old valiant car. And there's no doubt, is there, that people do amazing work restoring old cars. And you look, at the, you look at these old cars and they look on the outside like as the day they came off the uh, production line. But the thing about old cars, restored old cars, is that they're still old, aren't they? Underneath that kind of chic exterior, there's old parts, old engines, old technology. And the moment that you finish restoring them, they start to break down again. And that's what we're like, the Bible says, as human beings. We're broken, we're old We're distorted. We're corrupted by sin, by rebellion against God. And we don't just need to be rebuilt, remodeled, renewed, kind of like an old car is renewed. We need the old to be done away with and to be replaced with a new model, a model that doesn't decay, which doesn't distort, which doesn't wear out. And Paul says that if we are in Christ, we have that. We are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. Or, as the New Testament says in other language, we've died with Christ and been raised to life with him. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, old people are done away with. what we, Our oldness is done away with and we are made new people like Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about the gospel in terms of old and new. He also describes it in terms of reconciliation. Verse 18, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring back together. When a marriage breaks down, to reconcile a couple means to means that they forgive each other and that their marriage 
if you like, begins again, returns to what it had been. And the Bible says that outside of our relationship in Jesus, our relationship, uh, outside of Jesus, our relationship with God is broken. We've kind of run off with another partner. We've left God and run off with somebody else and left our relationship with God in tatters. Now suppose that um, a husband cheats on his wife by sleeping with another woman. That relationship is deeply broken and affected. And the ultimate power to reconcile and re-establish that relationship doesn't rest with the husband who's run off, does it? He can't come back and say to his wife, well, you should be glad to have me. Here I am, I'm back. Let's start again. All he can do is come back and say, I'm sorry for what's happened. I can't make this right. I need you to forgive me. The power for reconciliation doesn't belong to the party who's the, offend, the person who's offended. It belongs to the person who has been offended. And so it is between us and God. It's not us, up to us to sort of come back to God and say, well, God, here I am. Isn't it wonderful that I've come back? You should be so glad to have me. We've destroyed destroyed our relationship with him. All we can do is come back and say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I can't make this right. I need you to forgive me. And the wonderful good news of the gospel is, the good news is not God can forgive us. The good news of the gospel is that God has already said in Christ on the cross, yes, I will forgive you. It's not that we come back. You know, the husband might come back to his wife and say, will you take me back? She might say, no. I'm sorry, I can't forgive you. The good news of the gospel is that if we come back to God and say, I'm sorry, the good news is that God has already said yes in the death, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul describes the gospel in the language of old and new. He describes the gospel in the language of reconciliation. Thirdly, he describes the gospel in terms of sin and righteousness. So verse 21, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In simple terms, what what Paul is saying is that Jesus took our sin... And we take his righteousness. There's this great transaction. Our sin goes to him. It's condemned in him on the cross. And we receive as a gift his righteousness. I don't think Paul uh, merely means here a legal transaction. I don't think he only means that we're considered or we're declared righteous by God because we're in Christ. He's certainly, that's certainly part of the package. That's certainly true. But I think when Paul says that our great hope is that we might become the righteousness of God, I think he means what he's been saying for the last two or three chapters. 
To become the righteousness of God means that we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus with ever-increasing glory, the end of chapter 3. Or we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That is, Jesus took on himself the penalty for our sin. He died our death in our place so that we might receive his righteousness, so that his righteousness and life may be revealed in us, that we might be remade in his image, transformed into his likeness. He took our sin, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel motivates Paul's ministry. The gospel is the message of Paul's ministry. But the ultimate purpose of Paul's ministry is that people would be reconciled to God. That is, doing ministry, doing this ministry wasn't an end in itself. Paul didn't get to the end of the day and and say to himself, well, I've done ministry today, isn't that wonderful? I can be so happy with myself because I've I've done ministry. I did did this talk and I I did that and uh, I spent time with with Joe and with Susan and... uh, you know, whoever it was. No, his hope is not to do ministry, but that people might be reconciled to God. Look how he pleads with the Corinthians in verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, he said, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. It's an impassioned plea. Well, listen to verse 1 of chapter 6. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of our salvation. Paul spent five chapters, five chapters, talking about little else but his ministry among this church. It seems excessive. But what was the point of that? Why so much gory detail about what his ministry had been like? It's not so that the Corinthians would merely have a good model of ministry that they could follow. It was so that the Corinthians would be reconciled to God. He's saying to them, Do you see what we've done all these years that we've been among you? We've been ministering the gospel. Why? So that you would receive it and know God. It's so easy to forget that the purpose of gospel ministry is not to do it, but to save people. It's a sure sign that we've lost the purpose of our ministry when we stop asking the question, does this person who's receiving my ministry, do they know and love Jesus Christ? When we stop asking that question and we just start asking the question, well, what do I have to do next? 
How can I prepare for Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, whatever? How can I prepare for this next meeting? When those are the questions we start asking, we've lost the purpose of our ministry. Paul says our purpose was reconciliation. But it seems too that Paul and Timothy, who are writing this letter, are also afraid that the Corinthians would receive their ministry without receiving Christ. It seems that Paul's worried that after all this effort, the Corinthians may not actually have really embraced the gospel. It's sobering to think that we ourselves might receive great faithful gospel ministry. We might be recipients of God's grace, but that we might receive that grace in vain, that we might squander God's gifts. I think it'd be fair to say that almost all of us have received good gospel ministry in one form or another. Hopefully, in the last three years that I've been here, you feel that you've received good gospel ministry. You've certainly received good gospel ministry in the time that Fred was here. And not just from the front. You've received good gospel ministry from each other, in growth groups, in occasions for fellowship. Good gospel ministry from friends outside the church from parents, from family, from colleagues maybe. We've received good gospel ministry. But have we been reconciled to God? Because there's a difference, says Paul. He pleads. Be reconciled to God. Well, let me plead with you as Paul pleaded with the Corinthians, as God's ambassador on God's behalf, God says, please be reconciled to God. Do not receive this ministry in vain. Don't harden your hearts against the gospel. Uh, Every week I look out and I look at people and sometimes you can see You know, you can't always see what's going on in someone's heart and mind. But sometimes you can. Sometimes you can see people closing their hearts to the gospel. Please don't harden your heart against the gospel. Don't do it out of indifference. Don't do it out of bitterness. I beg you, don't receive God's grace in vain. Paul doesn't say reconcile yourself. He says be reconciled. He says receive what God has done. You might say to God something as simple as this. God, please reconcile me to yourself through Jesus Christ. Ask God, says Paul, because God is a listening and a helping God. Ask God because today is the day of salvation and because today is the time of God's favour. Let me pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul and Timothy and Titus and their faithful ministry. We thank you that we have received their ministry, it having been written down for us to read and to be encouraged by and challenged by and called to faith by. Thank you for the ministry that we have received from many people over many years in many places and in many churches. Lord, thank you for the people whom you have used as faithful stewards of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that none of us would receive that grace from you in vain, but that each one of us would be reconciled to you. Lord, we pray that your spirit might empower that plea of Paul and that those among us who do not know you will be drawn by your powerful spirit to put their trust in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.